Welcome to the Aspen Chapel podcast with Nicholas and Heather Vesey. Well, this is the fourth in a series that I'm doing on Jesus's Sermon on the Mount, Jesus's main wisdom teaching, um, where the Beatitudes, uh, which I'm doing at the moment, present a picture of one who is embodying that wisdom. Jesus starts uh, the Sermon on the Mount with the importance of not knowing. Wisdom cannot enter those who think they already know. So blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And after opening ourselves to not knowing, we recognize the lack of the divine in our lives. And so we're called to seek it. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. And in recognizing our poverty, we also eschew violence and our desire to make things go our way. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So we've divested ourselves of knowing, we've been called to seek the divine in life, and we've eschewed the temptation to try and control life. The next beatitude, the one we're talking about today, is blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. And the key word here is the one for righteousness, which in the Greek is dikaiousu, translated as the state of him who ought to be as he ought to be, the state of him as he ought to be, righteous or the condition acceptable to God. So the translation is really, is fortunate is he who hungers and thirsts after a right relationship with the divine, for they will be hortadzo, filled or literally satisfied. They will be satisfied, the Greek is hortazo. The only thing that will truly satisfy, Jesus is saying, is a right relationship with God. And we really, again, have to come back to that wonderful quote uh, from Bede Griffiths, uh, who encompassed it. He said, the goal of each religion is the same. It is the absolute transcendent state, the one reality, the eternal truth, which cannot be expressed which cannot be conceived. This is the goal not only of all religion, but of all human existence, whether they like it or not. All men and women are continually attracted by that transcendent truth, hungering and thirsting for it. The intellect, in and beyond every formulation by which it seeks to express its thought, is in search of the absolute. The intellect is made for being itself, for truth, for reality, and it cannot rest satisfied, hunger and thirsting, in any partial truth, in any construction of the human mind. It is always being carried beyond itself to the ultimate truth. And and that's really what Jesus is talking about here. Fortunate is he that seeks the ultimate truth, that right relationship, that spirituality, for only then will you be filled? And it says later in Matthew, it echoes it later on in Matthew, in that really famous one, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, righteousness again, 
and all these things will be given to you as well. And not just seek in this instance, it's hunger and thirst, the two cravings that keep us alive. Without hunger, we wouldn't feed ourselves. Without thirst, we wouldn't drink. So hunger and thirsting are the innate urges that keep us alive. Innate from the word ineski, which means from birth. And Jesus is saying that only if we remember and develop such an innate urge, that from birth that urge of a right relationship with God, only then will we be satisfied. So the question then really is, you know, what is a right relationship with the divine, with the universal mind? Rowan Williams' definition of spirituality came to my mind when I asked that question. And his definition of spirituality, Rowan Williams said that spirituality is the cultivation of a sensitive and rewarding relationship with eternal truth and love. So we have to cultivate that hunger and thirst, or at least remember it, because it's been beaten out of us by our culture. Remember from re-memoir to call it to mind, to call to mind a sensitive and rewarding relationship with eternal truth and love. Eternal truth and love is how Rome Williams characterizes the divine nature, which is in the first beatitude, Jesus has already asked us to recognize that we can't know. So our emphasis can't be on the, the isness of the nature of the divine. We can't be longing for something specific, but rather in our hungering and thirsting after the way that we relate to it. William Goldman uh, wrote a, uh, a, an introduction to the cloud of unknowing. And he says uh, about the cloud of unknowing, he says that the author speaks of steps on the way to enlightenment. And those steps, he says, the first is the rejection of thoughts about what I am and what God is in order to be only conscious that I am and that God is. So there's an unknowing about that. We're not worried about trying to describe what God is or who we are. We're simply focusing on the fact that God is and that we are. And we're looking for that innate hunger and thirst for, an, for a connection to that order which is at the centre of all things and which we're told we can know nothing about. We're wanting to cultivate that spirituality, the cultivation of a hunger and a thirst. And you know, it's almost... Therefore, it's a leap of faith. We can't know what that, that, that what is. We can only know that it is. And there seems to be a leap of faith we're being asked to perform with this beatitude because the centre of the right relationship with the divine, the centre of that right relationship, therefore, surely is trust. That definition of trust, which is a reliance on the veracity, integrity, or other virtues of something or someone, a reliance on the veracity, integrity, or other virtues of someone or something. We have to cultivate that hunger and thirst for our innate 
trust in the divine, in the order that's at the center of the universe. And only with that trust will we be satisfied. A trust that in the end, as Julian of Norwich says, all will be well and all manner of things will be well. And if they're not well, then it's not the end. We fear because we don't trust that we'll be looked after. We fear that things will end badly for us because we don't trust that there's something or someone to catch us in our need. You know, really relevant at the moment in this climate of fear that we have today. But our emphasis has to be on trust within that. Our spiritual practice, what we do to cultivate that sensitive and rewarding relationship with eternal truth and love, to cultivate that, that hungering and thirsting, is in fact an exercise in developing trust in ourselves as a part of a greater whole. We're not separate and we're not alone, but we are each individually an end point of consciousness that's developed over thousands of years. That all the wisdom of the ages in all our previous generations has led to us coming into being. And we have that wisdom within us. And our task is to bring that wisdom to mind, to remember it. And that, this wisdom, you know, it's interesting. We have to remember that it's not only in our rational minds, that wisdom, but it's in our bodies too. Our bodies have learnt how to hunger and thirst to stay alive. They've learnt how to grow. They've learnt how to reproduce without us thinking about it. And that wisdom is also there not only in our minds and in our bodies, but it's there in the earth mind, in the planetary mind, the mind that we're also a part of, the mind that keeps the planet alive and green and whole and knows how to bring the seasons around and knows how to bring rain. That's the planetary mind. And that wisdom that we have for our rational minds, our body minds, our planetary minds is also part of a universal mind that holds the universe together, a font of eternal truth and love that brings all things into being. And so our, our trust is really that we are part of a much greater whole, that there is a web of atoms and light and consciousness woven by that universal mind, that ordering principle, and that we are individually a part of that. And whether we know it or not, we are playing a part in the evolution of that web as it comes into fruition. And everything plays a part, each plant, each animal, each virus, each human being is all playing a part in the evolution of that web of consciousness. As William Goldman maintained, we cannot know what it is, but we can know that it is. And knowing that helps us to generate the hunger and thirst for a right relationship with, with that web and helps us to be filled, to be satisfied. I think there is a, a spectrum of trust and all humanity live 
somewhere on that spectrum, whether you're just trusting in yourself and your ability to get by, or you're trusting in your country and your country's ability to get by, or, or you're trusting in humanity and humanity's ability to get by with its innate decency, or you're trusting in your family or, or your community or your government or your religion. You're, you're somewhere along there on that spectrum of trust. And Jesus is saying that the only way that we can be filled or satisfied is by trusting in the ultimate order of things that's also beyond our understanding, but that we can know through our connection with love. Our trust comes from being connected in love. Love, which we've always said here, is the currency of the universe. The universe was given in love, our lives are given to us in love, and our way of life is guided by our commitment to love. And to love is to give ourselves with no expectation of return. The universe was given with no expectation of return. Our lives were given with no expectation of return. And so there's a fundamental love, and it takes trust to give in that way, which is why Jesus says the two commandments is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. It is to enter into that love, to give with no expectation of return. And to give with no expectation of return takes a trust in what we're giving will not be wasted. That somehow and in some way, everything that's given goes to weave that cloth of which the universe is made and which is gradually becoming. So we have to hunger and thirst for that trust. We have to work on it in our lives. It's not easy as we go through our lives. We feel the fear. We feel the lack of trust. And in those times, we have to go deeper and touch the trust that's there through love. It's through our willingness to love that we touch that trust. We have to develop it so that it becomes as innate as our desire to eat and drink. Because like eating and drinking, that trust is what truly gives us life. That trust is what satisfies us. And in developing that trust, we have to turn away from our superstitions and embrace reality. Those superstitions, not that I'm good or that I believe, or if I do the right thing, or if I obey, or if I follow orders. It's called righteousness because it doesn't trust in anything. Anything except that all will be well. It doesn't trust in my goodness. It doesn't trust in me believing in something. It doesn't trust in me doing good. It simply trusts that all will be well. Not trusting in our own knowledge, hence our poor in spirit, or our own righteousness, hence our mourning for lack of God, or in our own strength, hence the need for, for meekness. But simply knowing that love is at the center of things and that all will be well. Not because we say so, or because we do anything in particular, but because there is a fundamental order to life that is actually following a way forward. And because we are alive and we are part of that way forward. That lovely phrase from Romans 8, all things count for good 
for those that love the Lord. All things count for good. Everything counts for good to those who are loving the Lord, putting their trust. And remember that, that word for love that I mentioned the other week, uh, word for Lord. Lord means the, the origin of the word Lord is bread keeper, which is that which feeds us. So it's that which feeds us. All things count for good for those that give that love to that which feeds us. Fortunate is he who hungers and thirsts after righteousness, for they will be filled. It's an imperative to trust and not to fear. It's to say that we have to develop that trust within ourselves. And as we do that, we become satisfied filled and fed with nothing to fear. That's not to say that we have to trust that we'll not get ill or something will not happen to us. That's just not how it works. Things will happen to us. They happen to all of us. The trust is that we have everything we need to be able to respond appropriately to any situation that comes our way. We can respond appropriately because we have the wisdom within us, because we have the wisdom of the ages within us. And if we're hungering and thirsting for that right relationship with the divine, we are investing in a wisdom that will enable us to face any situation with equanimity. We will always have within us the wisdom of the ages to respond in an appropriate way even as we face our deaths. Now, I know that none of this is particularly revolutionary. For centuries, people have been talking about having a faith in God and not fearing. But what is different is the recognition of the universality of this message. That we do not have to trust in Jesus. We don't have to trust in Jesus or Buddha or Vishnu, or a set of principles, or a way of doing, or a way of thinking. There is no actual object to our trust. There is no object to our trust. Instead, it is a way of being this trust founded on love, giving with no expectation of return in the knowledge that we are part of a greater whole that in the end will ensure that all will be well for every part of itself. As I said, the message of Julian of Norwich, which is actually what Richard Rohr was featuring on in his meditations uh, over the last week. We are the universe made conscious of itself. And what we're being asked to be here, is con uh, conscious of, is that we're not on our own. That we are a part of a greater whole and that there is nothing to fear from that and that you know we're nothing to fear because it is that which is our own we are part of something which is our own if we could but trust in the process that we're living through we are a part of something it is a part of us and therefore we are a part of a greater whole that is not here to harm us all we have to do is to play our part and I want to end with that Stanza number 14 from the Tao Te Ching, which really says it all. It talks about the not knowing. It, it talks about a lot of what we've spoken of in these last four Beatitudes. This is stanza 14 from the Tao Te Ching. Look and it can't be seen. 
Listen and it can't be heard. Reach and it can't be grasped. Above it isn't bright, below it isn't dark. Seamless, unnameable, it returns to the realm of nothing. Form that includes all forms, image without an image, subtle beyond all conception. Approach it and there is no beginning, follow it and there is no end. You can't know it, but you can be it at ease in your life. Just realize where you come from. That is the essence of wisdom. So, any, any thoughts on uh, my pontifications there? <laughs> it, it made me think of the relationship between trust and surrender. Yeah. And um, how in order to arrive at a, an abiding state of trust in our lives, we have to surrender. And that's, that's almost like, this is why I'm so keen on centering prayer, because it shows it's a way of, of actually um, getting traction and perfecting the art of surrender so that we can then live in a state of trust rather than uh, trust for a certain outcome or, you know, trust about prayer and trust for a thing. It yeah. then becomes a, a way of living, you know. So that, that's what I was thinking about. Yeah. That's interesting because, uh, you know, the, there's a fine line, isn't there, between uh, trust and surrender and saying, oh, it's all going to be all right in the end, inshallah, you know, it's every, every, everything's going to be okay. It's not to say that we don't do everything we need to do in order to make our lives work. It's more about that not being attached to the outcome, isn't it? And, and about actually surrendering to that love that's at the centre of all things. Yeah, I mean, surrender is, surrendering is not capitulation and it's not resignation. It's, yeah. it's absolute strong trust into the ground, in the ground of all being and our being and... I mean, there's nothing more powerful to do, I think, and, you know. And the interesting thing, there, we don't hunger and thirst after surrendering. And, and actually, we do have to develop it. Because it, unlike, you know, we, we've developed this idea, you know, this hungering and thirsting after water and food and all that sort of thing. That's obvious. But it's interesting he says you should hunger and thirst after this because it's something we have to cultivate. You yeah. have to cultivate that, that actual hungering and thirsting after surrendering, because naturally we don't do that. We just try to get our own way. Well, it's interesting because we can probably, every human can relate to um, the hungering and thirsting bit. Like we all want something. We all feel a lack, yeah. don't we, in our lives? Yeah. And I feel like the, the trick is to, to spot when we feel that, almost like, a, and see it more as a beckoning to something and then to act on it. And so that, that's where practice becomes so helpful because um, you, you take that initial desire and instead of filling it with buying something or going to some entertainment, I mean, that's all, that, all that's great, but this is a yeah. way of really, practice is a way of gaining traction and really starting to abide. And to, that's a way to be being filled. So what you're saying, that's quite interesting, is that the hungering and thirsting is already there. It's already there. But, but what we're hungry and thirsting for is the Porsche or is the relationship or is, you know, the drink or whatever it is. The hungry and thirsting is there. And if we could recognise, actually, as B. Griffith says, that in fact, the hungering and thirsting, the desire is for something deeper. I mean, we're hungering and thirsting to be filled. Yeah. We, that, and, and so all we need to do is, is... That's right. ...open to it and surrender to it and knowing that it's absolutely, you know, that's so substantial and it's there 
to meet us as we as we move towards it. <laughs> it yeah. moves towards us. Like, and I love the way that in the Beatitudes. I mean, it's probably because you know. I've just made it up because it's like, but it seems to be that there is this sort of development, isn't there? This idea of, first of all, not knowing, being willing not to know, and then this yearning that, that's there, the mourning, you know, blessed are those who mourn. And then from that, uh, the, the, the meekness, which is of not trying to force things our way. And then we have, you are hungering and thirsting, but actually what you're hungering and thirsting for is a righteous. So there's a, a logic in, in the way it develops, isn't there? That, that completely makes sense to me. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, so now we're at the point of, well, you, you know, the whole spiritual life is participatory. Yeah. Like we have to do something in order to, to be met. The, the other thing that struck me in your talk yeah. was um, uh, the, the, the word, uh, you know, that we don't trust an object. It's not like... We often think of our spiritual life as, you know, subject and object, you know, us and God, and that yeah. somehow we've got to meet. But um, what we're really talking about is falling into a, a really vast and expansive objectless awareness, you know, where we're, this ob the subject-object divide is, is gone and we're just resting and living out of that place. Which is the true nature of non-duality, to get, you know, that term, you know, to use jargon, but the idea that there isn't... There are no others, that we are all of one. Yeah, and then we, we, it's not then that we uh, sometimes trust and sometimes don't trust. Yeah. We're living out of a, an abiding state of trust, yeah. and that's what we're trying to cultivate. Yeah. yeah. I think I'll leave it with, on that, <laughs> yeah. Thanks for listening. If you feel moved to make a donation to the chapel, please go to aspenchapel.org. Thank you. And if you'd like to receive these podcasts regularly, subscribe to the Aspen Chapel through Apple, Google Play, YouTube or any other outlet.